Welcome to Now I See, a place where people share their eye-opening moments and how it changed the way they see themselves, their world, and their place in it. We hope you'll be encouraged and inspired by the stories you hear and challenged to see things in a whole new way, too. Sit back and enjoy this show that we've prepared especially with you in mind. I'm your host, Kit McCarty. Today's guest is Betty Kurz-Grossinger. Welcome, Betty. It's nice to be here. I'm so glad you are. Betty's books draw heavily on what she heard and learned during the time she worked as a legal researcher for President Harry S. Truman in Independence, Missouri. From her work at a Dallas, Texas law firm and from her marriage to a G2 agent in the military. A cum laude graduate of University of North Texas, she taught business courses at Rockhurst College in Kansas City, Missouri. Her time in academic, business, and political circles gave Betty a heightened awareness and a unique insight into the inner workings and sometimes shadowy underbelly of covert government groups and resulted in two books filled with suspense and intrigue, the first of which is Davenport Dilemma, released in 2013, and its sequel, Davenport Daughters, released last year. These are fictionalized accounts of her real-life story, which we'll hear more about in our conversation today. Included in her story are two daughters and grandchildren, for which the books were written, and to whom they are dedicated. Betty, I see you as smart, witty, a deep thinker, a riveting storyteller, as well as a warm and caring friend. How do you see yourself? Oh my, Uh, you had mentioned that to me, and I haven't thought about that before. So I did have to do some thinking about it, and I guess I see myself as a survivor. You know, the road... At my age, it's been a long road, and it's been full of a whole lot of potholes. So, Survivor does describe that well. What do you think were some of the character traits that helped you survive? I mean, a lot of people come up against adversity, and they can't get past it. They never move on, but you did. Why? I think having a very strong daddy growing up, um, he was very insistent that, and this was that women could do anything, and that was at a time when... Uh, Girls weren't taught that, and uh, he was an electrician, and he taught me how to wire everything. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So, you know, he said, there isn't anything you can't do if you work hard enough. He said, except maybe lift really, really heavy things. Yeah, but if you're smart enough, and you were smart, you got yourself into a lot of really interesting (laughs) occupational things. Um, You're going to school and graduating when a lot of women weren't doing that. You became a teacher at a college level. A lot of women taught at a younger level, um, which took courage and chutzpah. You worked for a law firm, and not just any law firm, but a very high-level political official uh, working for the president. Um, Where'd you get the guts to try all those things? The law firm just sort of morphed in. I was married and to the G2 agent at that point in time, and we lived in Kansas City, and he was gone a lot, and I had time on my hands. I taught in the evening division of Rockhurst College, and but being left alone a lot, I knew I needed to do something else, and I applied for the local law firm out in Independence, and uh, was hired. And then when they found out I had top secret clearance because I was married to a G2 agent, I was scheduled to work for President Truman and really enjoyed that. That was a unique experience. And yes, it was when the years right after he came out of, off, out of 
being president. And he did have on his desk, the buck stops here. <laughs> so um, were you, you're drawn clearly to um, risk takers, adventurers, people who don't mind standing out. Are you one of those people? No. <laughs> oh, that's well, opposites, opposites attract. Not really, but evidently um, I do like travel. I do like adventures. Um, but there have been maybe a little too many of them in my life. Well, you've processed them well. Is, is writing part of your um, process? Uh, I think it is, yes. I actually started writing before I could write. I'd draw pictures and make my parents listen to the stories. And I'm quite sure they got very tired of that one. But my dad gave me a Christmas, the only Christmas present I ever remember getting, so it must have been very important to me, was a dictionary that he gave me at 10 10 years old. Well, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I opened that book, and I read from A to Z, like a novel. Who does that? That's great. So I think you can call me a... A nerd. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I also got a dictionary at about 10. And whenever I'd ask my mom for help spelling things, she'd say, go look it up. Well, if it was a word that wasn't spelled phonetically, I was in a world of hurt. Unless, of course, I had been as smart as you and started reading it from cover to cover. <laughs> well, the book still sits on my desk. I love that Today. so much. That is so much. I love that book. Who is the storyteller in your family? Did you pattern yourself after anybody? Uh, no. There were no storytellers in my family and no writers that I know of. Um, I think it came from being an only child in the Depression. You know, we didn't, you know, you go outside and play is what you did. And there weren't a lot of things to play with. And, uh, but I, lo- I don't know. I think, I don't think writers find stories. I think stories find writers. And yeah, I think good. it's in our head. And they talk to us, and maybe that's where schizophrenia comes from. (laughs) (laughs) But they talk to us, and they want out, and so we write those stories down so they quit waking us up in the middle of the night. (laughs) You said something like that in a recent book signing. Somebody asked you if if you were reporting on the facts, or did the characters write themselves, or did you know where the story was going necessarily when you sat down and you said? No, I don't. You know, I generally know how it's going to end, and I gener- and I know where it starts. And but all the middle part, no. Once you give characters a personality, and I do do that in my writing, I will make a bow for each character, and so that I stay true to their character, and uh, they pretty much take me where they want me to go. That is a really good bit of advice for aspiring writers because that way, especially when you have a lot of writers in your story, it's easy for their Mm -hmm. personalities to overlap and for them to change a little bit as they interact with the other characters. But as a writer, you always want that character to be true to themselves. And so to have a good understanding of who they are and what motivates them and um, what their typical go-to responses would be to have that clearly in mind before you start, I think is really useful. It is. You have to build a background for each Mm -hmm. one because Mm -hmm. they... Everybody has a reason for the way they act. Mm-hmm. They and, do. Uh, it when- comes from generally from ages zero to ten is where our gut reactions are formed. 
Well, that's what I like to open our conversations with. So who was that person and how did that person make the decisions that they made to get them where they are today? And so um, thank you. You've given us some great information to get us started. Uh, Well, your books are kind of... um, they're not kind of they are fictionalized accounts of true life stories so you had a pretty good idea where these characters were going to go and what they were going to do um tell us the difference between the fact and fiction in your brain which uh which places did you feel like you could embellish and which places did you feel like you really needed to tell the truth and sometimes that truth was hard or still unknown so it probably required some research tell us a little bit about that process for uh you know, most stories, you don't know the full story of it because there, uh, my husband could not, Bill could not tell me everything, and he could not give me names or places. So all that you have to make up in your mind. He could give me a general idea of what happened, and then everything else is fictionalized. Did you ever know where he was or what he was no, doing? No, I never knew where he went. Well, as a protection to you, I suppose mm-hmm. he didn't tell you. It was. Yeah. Tell me about getting the clearance. What was that process like to get high security? To get married? No. Well, I guess that was part of it, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When a G2 agent, uh, back then, I don't know how it is now, but in the 50s when we were going to get married, he had to apply for permission. And so the military came to Dallas and researched me. They talked to my my parents, our neighbors. They went to my high school and actually went to my college teachers. They wanted to find out if I had any covert leanings or had joined any groups that would not be permissible. So it, it took several months and we waited longer than we intended to because we didn't have, we couldn't get married. But evidently, I passed eventually and got top secret clearance along with Bill. Yeah, that's so interesting. So um, would you characterize life with Bill as otherwise pretty normal? I mean, people looking in, would they wouldn't know necessarily. No, they would never know. Yeah. Was he, did he travel a lot? Uh, in the military, yes, he did. Yeah. He'd be gone um, one to three weeks out of the month. And that was before sometime internet. it might be one week. Sometimes it might be two or three. Mm-hmm. That was before internet, so you couldn't necessarily no. call or no. FaceTime or whatever. You had to correspond through letters. No, no, no messaging. <laughs> right. No texting. So Could no. you write letters? No. No, he but, wasn't allowed to do that. Wow. Because it would have a postmark on it. Wow. So when he was gone, he was really gone. He how did was you really process gone. Yeah. How did you process that? You had little people at home to take care of. Yeah. It, well, I was there alone in Kansas City where we were. Were you on base? No. No. We lived, uh, we were scheduled out of, um, my mind just blanked out. Good grief. Fort Leavenworth? Thank you. Anyway, out of the bay, military base, but we lived per diem in Kansas City. Ah, okay. Itself. Okay, so yeah, and and you couldn't tell anybody when no. people say, you know, what do you, what does your husband do? You couldn't say. What did you say? No, we. I could say he was in the army. I'm saying the army. Yeah, okay, yeah. But that was about it. Wow, what an interesting life. Did you yeah. ever get to travel with him and any of his? No, you, you weren't stationed in Germany. No, there was only like one trip that we were scheduled that I was going to join because he needed somebody with him, and it was to Russia, but it it got canceled. Mm. So I didn't get to do that, and I was kind of happy I didn't. <laughs> well, it was a little scary. 
when I read your books, they are kind of scary. There's so much suspense and intrigue. I find myself when I'm reading them looking over my shoulder a lot. <laughs> Good. <laughs> So that's amazing to me that your your mind works like that. I'm always trying to smooth things out and make things peaceful. But you've spent some time really thinking about the danger and the intrigue and being able to tell it in a compelling way. Did Thank you me. always like suspense novels? I think I did. I think I got hooked with the Nancy Drew mysteries okay. when I was a child. And uh, then, of course, my first love was um, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. And I love the mystery part of it. Well, that's a good thing because you're a smart woman. And there were a lot of mysterious things that you observed um, and things that were top secret Mm -hmm. working for the president or working in law firms, things that needed to be held in confidence. Um, And as an adult, I think I fell in love with, you know, more thriller books like Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. Well, yours kind of <laughs> shadow those. And like I said, I was looking over my shoulder a lot while I was reading them. Well, listeners, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Betty Grosinger. Just a reminder, there are only two weeks left to meet the matching gifts for students in the Philippines in dire need of housing, food, educational, and medical supplies as a result of the devastation caused by Typhoon Ray, also known as Typhoon Odette, and complicated by the lingering effects of the pandemic. Your gift of up to $2,500 will be matched dollar for dollar in the next two weeks, so be sure to give today. We are also continuing our efforts to help Ukrainian refugees through Bridge Builders International and Relief for Orphans in Kenyan through our friend Nathan Oluumu. To find out more information about these important opportunities and more, visit nis.media and click on the Featured Causes tab. While you're on our site, make sure you've signed up for our weekly email and our monthly Bible studies. We've also added a page for quick links to our featured authors, like Betty. Take advantage of Amazon Prime Days, July 12th and 13th, and stock up on some great summer reads. As always, we hope you like our show enough to like, subscribe, rate, review, and share it with a friend. Our audience continues to grow because of listeners just like you. We'd love to hear from you on any of our platforms, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at NowICPod. Next week, meet J.J. Orzik and hear his electrifying story, and I mean that quite literally. J.J., an electrician, lost both arms working near a live wire and gained something we all wish we had. Tune in next week to hear his shocking tale. Now, back to today's guest, author Betty Grosinger. All 
Light, and we are back from our break with our guest today, Betty Grosinger. So, Betty, before our break, we were talking about uh, the person you were, and now we're going to get to the stories you wrote. So tell us a little bit about the books. Um, the first one, Devonport uh, Dilemma, was written a long time ago, um, but that was so meaningful for you in so many ways. Let's start with that one. Yeah, it was. It, it was a long process. You know, I always knew after... President Truman, and after my husband was in in the was in Army G two, that there was a lot of stories there because being a writer, I had written through the years, never published anything, never showed it to anybody, just stacked it in the floor of my closet mostly. Wow! <laughs> but um, I knew there was a story there, and it wasn't until the late nineties that it came together for me. My first husband had passed away at forty two. And I remarried like five years later. And so Ray and I were together at that point. And I had a dream that my first husband was still alive. And it was so real that I got up and looked for him. I had never experienced anything like that before. And I could not get it out of my head. And I even went to New Orleans because that's where the dream was, to look around, because I just knew Bill was somewhere still alive. And, uh, of course, he was not. But once I settled down from that, I realized, okay, I have the vehicle for the first book. And that's when I started writing. But the process got interrupted by raised five years of very bad health. And care, you know, me caretaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, after he passed away, I pulled out the book again, and I thought, okay, now is the time for me to write. And so I got serious with it. And I had written a little bit now, you know, through the years on the story, and it had resonated in my mind. And most of my process goes on in the middle of the night. <laughs> Many writers say that. <laughs> my head, it, it just works out all the problems and tells me where we're, the characters tell me where we're going. And then I get up and put it down on paper the next day. Oh, amazing. I've tried to do that. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night, jot some notes down and a tablet that I have on my nightstand and get up the next morning and I can't read them or I can't remember enough <laughs> of the idea. So that, that thing has it worked for me. I'm I glad that know, you can still remember them the next day. The characters don't seem to let me forget the stories. I love that. So, however, they do go silent when I'm going the wrong direction, which I did one time in the second book. And ended up having to delete about 100 pages and go the way the character wanted me to. Oh, I love that so much. I love that (laughs) so, so much. Well, I think sometimes the best stories, and for me, uh, certainly the first book, um, come from that place between what really happened and what might have been. And I think we spend a lot of our time there, maybe more than we should. But I think thinking people think that. you know, this is this is the hard, cold reality. Did we miss something? Is there something we could have done different? Is there something still left for us in that place where we are and where we'd like to be? And I think that uh, Davenport Dilemma kind of did that. Maybe that is the dilemma. It's caught somewhere between the real and the might have been. Did you feel that tension? Were you writing from that place? Or was I think there something probably, else? I think I was. I really wanted to... Um, 
give my daughters a feeling of their dad's personality. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the impetus for doing the books. And, of course, that's who Josh, the main character, was modeled after. And, you know, trying to give them, okay, what we, we can do let's pretend and do a what if he didn't die, you know, when they were young. Well, it was a very tender moment when they were all gathered around you at that first book signing, um, and you told them, I wrote this book for you, and there were some tears. It was it was very sweet, <laughs> um, because they knew it was a labor of love, and it was a hard story to tell, but you persevered, and you did it. And it's a good story. And it You know, it persevered into the second book, because I knew the second book before I ever finished the first one. Oh, my goodness. It how did you keep them apart? to write it. <laughs> Well, yes. How, how did you not tell the story before it's time? I guess that's good writing. <laughs> I don't know. You just you just don't, you know. Well, you're a better person than me. If I know a secret, I have to tell it. And you are you knew the secret. You knew that there was going to be a sequel. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, that was a long time in coming. Why? It was because Ray had said, oh, mm-hmm. a little over five years in ill health. And I was delayed there, and then I started writing it. And then, I, of course, I published the first one after he passed. And then I was moving to another location. And when you've lived in a house for 50 years, it takes a long time a to thing. clear it out. It's a thing. There's more junk in those ha- in houses. Well, and memories <laughs> you need to move. and treasures, yeah. yes. You should move every 10 years so oh. you clean out a house. <laughs> Um, some people write through their grieving process. So while you were grieving, saying goodbye to Ray, some some people write during that time, but you took a different path. You, you kind of sat on that and you let it write itself in your head, or did you just shove it all together? I really didn't do um, that type of writing after Ray. Now, after Bill died when we were so young, yeah, there is another book in the stack back there. I was going to ask but about that, uh, the Closet Chronicles. Unhappy stuff, you know, you chronicle. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in grief or pain, I tend to write in prose. Yeah. And um, so there is another book back there. I'm I, hoping so. But no, no, that one won't be published. But um, Do you use it as source material? No, I don't. Do you go back I and read them? I don't think my girls have ever read it. I have, but it makes me cry. Me so too. It takes me back too far. Yeah, I do. And, I have journals that I've kept you know, over the years. Once you have been able to come to peace about a death, uh, you want to keep it there. Yeah. You know, your love never dies. People no. never die in your head. Right. You just have to find a peace about where they are and where you are. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's not easy, and we're back to that gap between where we are, reality, and what might have been. Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting place, and it's an interesting place, and I think a lot of us spend a lot of time there, um, but only few are brave enough to really think about it, and I'm glad you did because it produced some wonderful readings and some great entertainment for the rest of us. Um, so uh, what, was, what was the driving force behind this sequel? I think even at, right after you released Devonport Dilemma, you were already talking about the sequel. Yeah. You knew it was going to be at least had two the books. story in my head. Yeah. 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 It, it was just a sequel. I just want the, the daughters were going to come up a little more prominent. And uh, this, it, it just had to be written. 
I'm so glad you did. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking maybe it took you so long just because self-publishing is a challenge. No, you went through Avid. No. Yeah, you had a good no. experience. No, it was fine. The first one was a, was more difficult than the second. Because it's the first one. Of yeah. course. Yeah. There's more things you have to learn. Yeah. And then there's things you have to unlearn <laughs> about publishing. And, of course, the first publisher merged with another company. Mm-hmm. And so then I went with a different publisher. Yeah. A lot of people do that, especially and, with a time mm-hmm, gap that you had. With a time gap. So how can people find your books? Uh, it's on Amazon. And um, just go in and you can either Google my name, Betty Kerr's Grossinger, or uh, Davenport Dilemma. Okay, our very good. Our daughters. We're going to make it easy for our listeners by including that information in our show notes and on our platforms. Where can people get in touch with you? If you got a website? Uh, yes, there's a website, BettyKersGrowSinger.com, and also uh, a Facebook page. Good. And it is just the name of the first book, The Davenport Dilemma. Okay. Well, we'll include that information in our show notes as well. We can talk there, and I would love it. Good. Well, you are a wonderful (laughs) person to have conversation with. This has been so much fun for me. As we close out our show today, is there anything you'd like people to see more clearly as a result of our conversation? I would just love for people to write down your stories. Um, I have a theory that comes from the Bible because it says to tell your children. And uh, I do have uh, another book that won't go public, but it's written for my children. And when I used to lead the writer's group, I would tell them all, just start writing little, not I was born, da-da, da-da, da-da. We don't want to do that. Just start with a little story, one to two pages, maybe three. Something about what happened to you. What was your first date? What was your first childhood playmate? Tell, tell the stories. Stick it in a loose-leaf binder and leave it for your children. Someday they're going to want to know. Oh, absolutely. And everybody has a story. Everybody I think. has a story. And I love that. And, you know, of course, mine has the thread of, of Jesus that runs throughout mm-hmm. the story. And starting with my grandparents, and so I wanted them to see where it started for me and where they can follow the thread through my life. Oh, I love that. I love that you're smart enough to not only recognize that, but to share that with the next generation and with all of our listeners. I'm so excited to be able to present these books. So we will have links uh, directly to your sites, to those books, so people can visit those. And if you want to continue the conversation with Betty, I guess you're going to show up on her website or her Facebook page. And how fun would that be? So thank you for your time today, Betty. We have sure enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Kit. I loved it, too. Thanks. And listeners, we'll see you again next week. We're so glad you were able to join us for today's compelling story. You can find out more about our guest today by reading our show notes or visiting our website, nis.media. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Special thanks to the team at Headset Radio for their technical expertise and to Becky Salazar for our bumper music. See you next week.